The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin, and my guest today is Nancy, Dr. Nancy Mezzi who is Associate Dean and Sociology Professor at Monmouth University. Dr. Mezzi is the author of a new book, LGBT Families. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's good to have you here. Let's start with a definition. What in the world is an LGBT family? <laughs> it's a great question, uh, and it's a deceptively simple one, uh, and I think I think that was one of the reasons that uh, Sage Publications actually asked me to, um, or privileged me actually with this responsibility of writing this book, is sort of to tackle that that question, what is what is an LGBT family? It's hard enough to define families in general, and, and I teach family sociology, and when I ask my students what's a family, they all sort of look at me with a blank face. So then when you start adding these other adjectives to it, it becomes even more complicated. So when you think about LGBT families, um, you know, Judith Stacy, who's a sociologist, asked, should we count only families in which every member, uh, every single member is gay? Let's, and, let's back up. LGBT. Sure. LGBT. Le- lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. Right. Yeah. So LGBT. Okay. Right. I'm sorry about that. Um, lesbian, no gay, problem. bisexual, transgender. There's a whole sort of alphabet soup of initials. Sometimes people will put Q on there for queer or questioning. They'll put I on there for intersexual um, they'll put A on there for ally, uh, but I, I, I looked specifically at lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered families. And so, you know, what, how I define it, you know, one of the things that's difficult about uh, defining families is that families themselves don't have a sexual orientation. People do. So you might right. have the presence of just one gay member or lesbian member, and we have to ask, does that make the family gay? Um, and if that was the case, then we'd count people like Ronald Reagan and Colin Powell, Phyllis Schafly, Newt Gingrich. They would all have gay families. Um, or do you count everybody in the family who's gay? Uh, and, and what I try to do is try, I tried to come up with a definition that was as broad as possible and as inclusive as possible. So Here's my definition, um, and, and, I, uh, and I'll read this because there's no way that I can sort of say it in any other way. Um, so I, what I say is LGBT families consist of two or more people who are related by birth or law or intimate affectionate relationships, so friendship or, or love, um, who may or may not reside together, and where the LGBT identity of at least one family member impacts other family members in some meaningful way. So it's a really broad definition that I use, uh, but it's not a legal definition, it certainly wouldn't hold up in, in a court of law. Got it. So now we know who we're talking about. Right. It's good to do that. Yeah. And I read part of your book. 
I understand that we have had a large increase in LGBT families over the past few decades. What's going on with that? How'd that happen? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. I, I was never um, I was never somebody who was particularly interested in history until I started studying families, and then I realized how important it was to understand history in order to understand where we are today, and especially with families. And so, you know, LGBT families came out of the gay liberation movement, which we're really living through right now. Um, so you had uh, a series of court decisions, Supreme Court decisions. You had a series of social science understanding of what deviance was. You had the women's movement um, and the civil rights movement. Uh, and you had this sort of growing over since the 19, I would say, 30s and 40s, really up to today, a growing awareness that there, was, there were people who had same-sex attractions and them coming together in organizations like the Daughters of Bilitis and the Mattachine Society in the 1950s, who really started to understand their relationships in ways that was not pathological, uh, which is the way that most people sort of viewed them, as that they were, there was an illness. And when, we, when they started looking at the civil rights movement in the 1960s, what happened was uh, the, they really realized, uh, those people at the time uh, who had same-sex attractions and were sort of organizing on their own, really realized that there were significant ways of mobilizing themselves, and they really uh, sort of used the civil rights movement as a model for how to organize themselves. And then they had the women's rights movement and birth control, and when people started having, when heterosexual people started having sex for fun um, rather than sex for procreation, they started looking very similar like homosexual sexual relationships who, who obviously weren't procreating. Um, and then you had, at the same time, reproductive technologies that were coming about, so donor insemination and IVF in vitro fertilization that allowed people to have um, sex without children and children without having sex, uh, to use Lillian Faderman, who's a historian, her, her term, which I thought was you know, really clever. So you have the pill birth control, but you also have these other conceptive technologies. And then interestingly, you had the HIV AIDS um, epidemic, which one also gave people an organizing cry. So it was something to organize around. Uh, but it also, as people were dying in uh, gay and lesbian communities and particularly gay communities, there was sort of this movement to bring children into those communities. And so out of that, out of those sort of the gay liberation movement, reproductive technologies connected to civil rights and women's movements, um, and then the HIV AIDS epidemic, we really saw the beginning of LGBT families. And it started with um, women mostly who were, had heterosexual relationships and became mothers through their heterosexual relationships and then later came out as um, as lesbian. And now the movement, now, the, now families are very much people who are within their identities of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, having children as, you know, within those identities. And, and then, and so it's, it's sort of um, a mother coming out was the first sort of wave of, if I can use that term, sort of wave of families. But now you have people who have already come out becoming parents. Um, so that's really why, we, why we're seeing this. It's sort of a culmination of a, a perfect storm in many ways that we're seeing this huge increase in families. And then as the laws change and it becomes much more socially acceptable, uh, we're going to see those families grow, I think. Okay. You just said something that really surprised me um, in the list of uh, what led to having a, many more LGBT families than we used to have. One of the things you mentioned was the HIV epidemic. Right. And that 
I expected you to say that that led to people wanting hospital visitation rights or it led to gay people wanting inheritance rights. But what you you said was that it made people want to bring children into their community. Can you explain that a little more? Sure. And there's not a huge amount of research on this. Certainly those those aspects that you just mentioned were true. So one of the things that happened is as ill partners, as partners became ill, people realized that they didn't have the same rights, that they didn't have the same hospital visitation rights, that they weren't having access to their, their loved ones who were dying. I mean, certainly that was a piece of it. And, but the other two pieces of it was, one, that, that they really started organizing and they became much, they had much more sense of community and that really brought people together and helped them network. But there really is some evidence to suggest that as men in particular were dying, there was some desire to sort of replenish and not, not replenish a gay population, but to, to bring life back into their communities. Um, and again, there's not a huge amount of information on this, but I think it's certainly, um, it, there's certainly enough to suggest that that really was happening. Interesting. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, so... It, it, sorry, the, the HIV AIDS, you know, the interesting thing about that as well is that it, it sort of had a, another effect in that... Uh, while lesbians were, were at some point were asking gay men to help father their children um, af- after the HIV AIDS epidemic, that led lesbians to use much more re- reproductive technology from a sperm bank that w- they knew was clean. And, and that, so that sort of in some ways divided the communities as well along lines of gender. Right. So um, all this time, uh, before, during, and after these social movements that you've described, we've had a lot of people who basically said, if you're, if you're a lesbian, if you're gay, if you're bisexual, if you're a trans- ves- transgender person, or if transvestite, which is right. something quite different. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, any of those things, there's something wrong with you, and you're causing social problems. And I think in your book you argue it kind of flips the other way. It's society's discrimination against these people that is causing the social problems. Can you tell me more about that debate? Sure. You know, this is a, um, this is a debate that really starts with our understanding of what's deviance and how do we define what's normal. Um, and as a sociologist, I certainly would argue that there's really very few things in the social world that are naturally normal. Um, and so we defined what's normal. And so when we start understanding people's behavior as um, as socially normal or or not, we we can help. We can start deconstructing society rather than deconstructing people. And that's an important sort of aspect for for sociologists, which is the field that I come out of. So um, you know, one of the things that we realized when you look at the research across the board, and that was really one of the main things that I did in this book is gather a lot of research across the board of disciplines. When you look at that research, what you find is that a lot of times LGBT families don't look a whole lot different. There are some differences, but they don't look a whole lot different from heterosexual families. And what's really different about them is obviously gender composition in certain instances, but what's really different about them is the amount of discrimination that they have to face and when you take that away, we find that children who are raised by lesbian and gay parents are as healthy, if not healthier, in terms of mental health indicators than children raised in heterosexual families. When you look at how parents are parenting their children and what they, their expectations of children and how they're trying to build communities 
and, and teach their children about tolerance, um, we find that, in fact, those, cha- those families are, are very healthy on those, on those sort of, if you use those as the standards. And so there's, the, the families themselves are not pathological. The, the difficulties that they're facing outside from a heterosexist and homophobic world, um, those are really what's causing problems for families. I see. Does that answer your question? It does. Okay, great. What should we do about it? Um, Well, I think, you know, it's similar to what we should do about um, most of the inequalities in this world, whether they be along lines of race and class or gender or sexuality, that we really need to examine why they exist and we really need to examine who benefits from those inequalities and we really have to understand how that discrimination can be really detrimental to a variety of people in society, and when we are detrimental to some people in society, it really brings society down. So as a society, as a whole, I think we have a vested interest in uh, trying to secure and help all of our families, regardless of their sexual or gender um, orientation. What else can we do about it? We can certainly, you know, part of, part of this is structural, so we can give people the same rights that everybody else has in this country, so, uh, and that's the big movement right now is the marriage equality movement. Um, so make marriage equal for everybody, give everybody equal access to marriage, and that will take care of a, f- a huge amount of problems that families are facing right now, LGBT families. Uh, we can also uh, do a big cultural push, and I think that that has been happening. I think changing the hearts and minds of people has been happening very, very quickly in this country, faster probably for LGBT people than it has for most other groups of people that have been discriminated against. And I think that's largely, or at least in part, to do with, um, with the fact that LGBT people are everywhere. And they, you know, so families aren't necessarily willing to throw out their family members. And so there's an acceptance that's happening. So I think that, you know, we're on the, we're on the right path. I think the, the path is to change laws to support our families. And they're also on the change hearts and minds. I have people understand that there's really nothing uh, there's really nothing uh, wrong with deciding that you are, are, are deciding or, or just feeling that you are attracted and want to spend your life uh, with somebody else of the same sex. I see. I noticed that in the book you consistently used the term marriage equality rather than talking about gay marriage or same-sex marriage. What was the reason for that? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I think that and I spent a lot of time in the book with definitions uh, because things like, like you just asked, you know, LGBT, what does that stand for? And transgender is a whole other sort of quagmire of definitions. Um, so with marriage equality, what gays and lesbians want, and this is really a, about gays and lesbians more than it is about bisexuals and transgender, at least the beginning of the movement has been. It, it's, it's merged, but... Um, the, gays and lesbians are not looking for a separate system of marriage. They're not looking for a special category of marriage called gay marriage or same-sex marriage. They are looking for marriage. And so it's not about... So when you use the term gay marriage or same-sex marriage, really what you're talking about, it's, you know, it, it seems like, well, we want this special category and these special rights for people. And that's not at all what gays and lesbians want. They want to have access to the institution, the current existing institution of marriage as it stands. Okay, so they want to have the same thing that heterosexual people have. Right, under the same name. They don't want any sort of separate but unequal system. You said somewhere that there are 1,138 benefits to marriage. 
I happen to be a married person, and I wasn't aware that I had a thousand, more than a thousand <laughs> benefits. What's that about? Yeah, and I didn't count them all. Um, this is uh, the federal, U.S. federal government that, that has counted them all. Um, so what are, what are they about? They're about um, all sorts of different types of um, rights that people have. Um, so if you uh, think about there's sort of 11 categories uh, that they fall under. So Social Security, uh, those kinds of programs, veterans benefits, taxation, uh, military benefits, employment benefits, uh, immigration and naturalization rights. Uh, there are some rights for uh, Native Americans, um, trade and commerce, financial, crimes and family violence, loans, guarantees, uh, let's see what, what I left out, um, natural resources, and then there's a bunch of mis- miscellaneous sort of uh, other, other areas that, that fall uh, under those, that those 1,138 benefits fall under. So really what this is saying is that when you get married, you have access to certain laws, this sort of patchwork of laws that protect you just because you're married. So for example, um, when you get married, you have the right to... Um, you, you have well. You, have the, you when you're married and then have children, uh, you and your partner, you and your spouse, automatically have custody of that child. There's no question about who the other parent is. Um, if your uh, spouse is uh, in an accident, in a car accident, or has some illness, you have hospital visitation rights. Uh, as you grow old, you have the right to be in the nursing a nursing home or a nursing facility together. So there's all sorts of benefits uh, to being married. Uh, those are the economic, and those are what they're talking about. The 1,138 are the economic and material benefits, the legal benefits, um, as opposed to then there's, you know, one could argue there's a whole slew of social benefits as well, the legitimization of, of a relationship that, um, that also goes along with marriage. I see. Is access to these economic and material benefits and social recognition, are those the main reasons why a lot of LGBT family want to marry? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting, um, again, sort of taking a historical perspective on marriage. So if you look at the history of marriage, marriage is an economic institution. It always has been an economic institution. Uh, the, reason that, uh, the reason that we had marriage originally, actually, so if you go way back when, the rule was that um, a woman had to be married before she could have sex, and then she could only have sex with her husband. And that way, he knew exactly where his bloodline, where, the, where his wealth went, that it went down his bloodline. Because men don't always know where, who their children are biologically, but women always do. And so marriage has always been an economic institution. And so uh, it was only about 150, 200 years ago that, that, we, that it shifted to be an institution of love. And so, uh, which is a very, by the way, it's a very iffy, it's a real problem when you base a relationship on such an important institution on a very fickle relationship. I mean, economics will hold us together. Uh, love, you fall in and out of. So it's, it is a dangerous sort of way to, to, to look at marriage. But for now, when you look at LGBT par, um, families and LGBT people, you know, if you got, if you, uh, if you're not married, then it makes life really, really hard. It means that you have to, um, when you adopt a child or when you have a child, you have only one parent as a legal parent. Uh, when you want to pick your child up at school, you're not a legal parent, then what do you do? Um, then you've got to sort of write these notes. Can I let this person and who is this person? Um, who is this person going to 
uh, you know, that's picking up my kids. Uh, when you write out your will and testament, you have to come up with all sorts of provisions that you're going to be taxed on. And, and th- that was where the Windsor case came out of um, in the Supreme Court in 2013. Okay. Nancy, we're going to have to hold off on talking about the Windsor case because it's time for a break. Sure. I'll be back with Dr. Nancy Mezzi in a couple of minutes. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, Keep expenses down and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, and my guest today is Dr. Nancy Mezzi, author of LGBT Families, a book about families that include people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Just before the break, we started talking about the Windsor case. Let's get back to that. So the Windsor case was a case uh, that was taken up to the Supreme Court in 2013, and it really challenged the this the problem that people were having when you um, marry in one state or in another country, and that marriage is not uh, it, it is not um, recognized in another state. And so there was a couple 
who got married in Canada, and they came back to New York, and one of the partners died. And when she died, the other partner had hundreds of thousands of dollars that she had to pay in taxes to to win that to gain her partner's estate. And she was wealthy enough to do that, but she wanted to um, she wanted the state she wanted to be reimbursed because there are state rules, and then there are government there are, sorry there are federal laws regarding marriage. And so the state of New York at the time did not recognize Canada's um, marriage laws which is very different for heterosexuals. When heterosexuals get married, it doesn't matter. There's the full faith and credit clause of the U.S. Constitution that says when you have that license, a marriage license, it transfers to any state, sort of like a driver's license would, would do as well. And so that case went up to the Supreme Court and challenged the Defense of Marriage Act, which was put into place by President Clinton in 1996. And one of the – there are sort of three prongs of the um, – Domestic, the DOMA, what's called DOMA, Defense of Marriage Act. And one of the questions that was really asked in the Windsor case was, under federal law, um, as a legal union, um, if, if marriage is defined as a legal union between one man and one woman, which is how DOMA defined marriage, does that deprive same-sex couples who are legally married under state laws uh, of their Fifth Amendment rights to equal protection under federal law? And the Supreme Court said, yes, in fact, it does. And what that meant is that laws, states that, um, states that had, uh, states that did not recognize um, marriage equality or, or didn't have marriage equality could then, it opened the door for those states to sort of, to, to welcome in marriage equality. So New York turned New Jersey. I mean, since then, we've seen this whole falling of states where they have, Instead of they, they've said their constitution also discriminates against LGBT people, and they have taken the stance that, that they're going to allow same-sex couples to get married. And so that happened in 2013, and we saw a, a large number of states um, change. What's happened? It, what's really amazing is that, and this has been really a challenge in writing the book. Um, when I wrote the book, and I published this in uh, late 2014, it has a 2015. Um, uh, copyright on it, but when I published it, it was, um, there were something like um, 19 states that granted marriage to same-sex couples and 31 that did not. And now there are 37 states that are granting marriage and only 13 who do not. So it's almost switched completely. And that was because of the Windsor case. And Wow, the, that is a huge change. Right, right. So as I'm writing this book, I mean, almost every day, I'm just I'm updating it and updating it. So, you know, as soon as it came to print, it was out, outdated, and it's way outdated wow. at this point. You know, that section, not the entire thing. But, um, <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's really phenomenal. And then and um, one of the reasons that the Supreme Court at the time did not want to go all the way and say, in, in fact, the federal government has to recognize same-sex marriage and to completely strike DOMA from the books was because they were concerned that there was not enough support on the state level for such a change. And now um, I think that they're saying that there is. So we have a new case coming um, in that's just on the docket. The, the Supreme Court's going to hear it in, um, in April, I think April 28th. Um, it's uh, Obergefell, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, versus Hodges. Um, and that's four states, Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee. It's consolidated, the court has consolidated those four cases and it's going to hear those um, on, on April 28th. And, and what's the issue in those cases? 
So in those cases, the question is, does the 14th Amendment, there's two questions actually. So the first one is, does the 14th Amendment require a state to license a marriage between two people of the same sex? And the second question, and the 14th Amendment was the amendment, um, just to sort of, if people don't um, know, the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, and it was the civil, it was part of the Civil Rights Act um, to give uh, African Americans the the rights, legal rights. So during the, so the second question is, does the 14th Amendment require a state to recognize a marriage between two people of the same sex when their marriage was lawfully licensed and performed out of state? And so this is really, this is the bottom line. This is really the the federal government is going to decide on this. And if they decide um, that, yes, that in fact the 14th Amendment does require a state to license a marriage between two people of the same sex, this will be the end of discrimination. I mean, this will be a full marriage equality uh, throughout the United States. That's what we're looking at. And I just wanted to, um, if I may, sort of give a personal story, um, you know, my own sort of take on marriage. And I I know in the book I sound like I'm really pro-marriage. And I have to say, for most of my life, particularly as a feminist sociologist, I have found marriage to be a pretty ugly um, institution as a social institution, not as a personal relationship, but as a social institution that has been built around discrimination of women and discrimination against uh, slaves who were not allowed to marry um, and using women as property for many, many years through marriage. And I just wanted nothing to do with marriage at all. I just really felt like I I don't want to get married. And what happened over the years is as my partner and I had children, we realized there's no, other, there's no other social institution that connects families the way that marriage does and that privileges families the way that marriage does. And so we were together um, 19 years uh, when, we, when New Jersey finally allowed us to get married and uh, our children are, are in their teens. So um, we got married in uh, January of 2014. And I have to say that even though I was really initially opposed to it, it was a really amazing feeling to say it really doesn't matter what other people think about my relationship. My state and my federal government has supported me. And that was really, uh, you know, quite eye-opening for me. I didn't really think when people said, how do you you feel differently now that you're married? I'm like, no, not really because we've been together for so long. But, But in terms of just legitimizing my relationship, legitimizing our relationship for my partner and me and our children. It was really powerful to think, I don't really care what people think about my family. My state has legitimized me. And, and that was really quite, like I said, that was really quite powerful. That's, it's a very interesting phenomenon that gay and lesbian people, at least, I think there's less research about bisexual and transgender people, but gay and lesbian people at least are really seeking marriage equality and at the same time, an awful lot of heterosexual people are saying, marriage, oh, I'm not so sure about that. Right. Somewhere between 40 and 50% of the babies born in the United States now are born to people who are not married to each other. Right. Or not married at all. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a funny juxtaposition. Well, you know, in some ways... Well, right, and not only are they not getting married, but they're also, you know, they're getting divorced, and they're, um, you know, the divorce rate has has been pretty stable since the 1980s at around 50%. And so it is sort of amazing that, you know, that that gays and lesbians want into the marriage club. Uh, They they really do, and that you see this this other side, they're saying, "Mm, I don't know. But part of that is this effort, I think, by gays and lesbians. You know, people say, what's the difference between 
gay and lesbian and transgender and, and bisexual couples. And I know that I've been speaking mostly about gay and lesbians here. The book really does try to talk about transgender and bisexual families. There's just not a huge amount of literature on that. Um, and the other thing the book tries to do is really look at race, race and class differences within different families. Um, but, but, you know, to your point about uh, why gays and lesbians want to get married, uh, because they're really also trying to create families that are really based on a non-gendered or degendered model. So while men see marriage as a ball, heterosexual men may see marriage as a ball and chain and heterosexual women see marriage as, you know, really preventing them potentially from getting their job, going through their jobs or, or um, you know, whatever sort of rationale and they're economically stable. They don't need a man anymore to, to rely on um, and they don't want to have a man that they're going to have to be responsible for necessarily. Lesbians and gay couples and transgender and bisexual as well are really trying to create more egalitarian divisions of labor in the household. They're really trying to share household. They're not 100% successful, certainly, but they have a, they have a they're trying to create a model that is more egalitarian, and that might make marriage look a little bit more attractive to them. I see. One of the other differences your book mentions between heterosexual families and LGBT families is that for most LGBT families, parenthood is a choice. It doesn't happen by accident. I think you wrote your first book was about that, New Choices, New Families, How Lesbians Decide About Motherhood. Right. Do you want to say anything more about that? The consequences sure. The consequences of the fact that this is a, an intentional choice to become a parent? Does that make the families different? Well, I think certainly, I think, it, I think that's an area ripe for research, by the way. Um, but I, what, what I found in my original research, which was primary research where I interviewed um, a variety of different lesbians, both those who had chosen not to have children, so child-free lesbians as well as lesbian mothers, is that we know that somewhere between 40, to, among heterosexual couples, somewhere between 40 and 60% of all pregnancies are unplanned. That doesn't mean they're unwanted, but it does mean that they're unplanned. Um, that number approaches zero for LGBT parents. Um, so you have, you have lesbians who go through great pains uh, to become parents uh, through reproductive technologies or through adoption. You have the same, I mean, even more so for, for gay men who uh, have to find a womb somewhere, right? So they have to, if they want to have biologically connected children or they have to adopt. You have transgendered people who, before they transition, will sometimes freeze their sperm or freeze their eggs so that they can then go back and use them when they're ready to have children. And it's fascinating, a uh, really fascinating process. And then you've got bisexual people who are trying to figure out what kinds of relationships they want to be or how do they negotiate their relationships. And I would say bisexuals actually are the most marginalized of the group of, of LGBT people. And so when you have that kind of intention, what it means is that children that are born into or brought into LGBT families are brought in with a, a real meaning that, they wanted, that those adults wanted to create a family with children, uh, which may or may not be the case with heterosexual couples. And I think what that I think one of the reasons that we see the research showing that children raised in LGBT families are at least as healthy if not more on every mental health uh scale is partially because those children have been carefully thought about in terms of in their preconception of being brought into the families and there's been a, some preparation on the part of LGBT parents that may or may not exist with heterosexual 
couples. What did you find when you were doing the research? Um, How do lesbians make the decision about whether to have children or to remain child-free? So a lot of it is very similar to heterosexuals. And this was a fascinating area for me because parenthood and becoming a mother seems to be just a bio. When you ask people, why do you want to become a mother? And they're like, well, my biological clock was ticking. And I wanted, again, as a sociologist, really wanted to understand what was going on socially that prompted uh, women to become mothers. So number one, oddly enough, uh, there are some childhood sort of experiences that might lead somebody to desire becoming a parent or not. But as an adult, number one reason why women in general, whether they're heterosexual or lesbian, women in general choose to become mothers or not has to do with their relationship to work. So are you in a dead-end job? Well, yes, then chances are pretty good that you're going to, a nice way to duck out of that dead-end job is to have children. Are you at a job that you really want to move ahead in and children will hold you back? Then chances are you're going to push childhood off or parenthood off um, for a little bit. So that's the number one reason regardless. Uh, the other reason for lesbians in particular is what kind of health care do they have or do their partners have? Because if their partners don't have good health care and they don't have good health care, it's going to be very difficult to become a parent. Second reason, again, both for heterosexuals and um, lesbians, heterosexual women and lesbians, second reason is really um, your partner. How much does your partner want to have children? And if your partner really wants to have children and you want to stay with that partner, then there's a good chance that you will decide to have children as well, or you have to make the decision to leave that partner. But what's different for lesbians and gays and, and bisexuals and transgenders as well is really access to becoming a parent and that's where the, the differences are. So when you make a decision to become a parent when you're lesbian or gay, again, you have to, make, you have to connect to somebody who is going to provide you with sperm or an egg because you're missing part of that um, right. as, a, as a same-sex couple. And so either you have to or you have to access adoption. And there are adoption agencies that will not work around the country that won't work with LGBT people. There are doctors that will not work. They will not inseminate LGBT people. Uh, For gay men, surrogacy, which is, again, if you want to be connected to, biologically connected to your child, surrogacy, you can can spend up to $150,000 for for the whole surrogacy process. It's really, really expensive. So it becomes a very white middle class uh, endeavor. So as an LGBT person, in order to find physicians or legal services or or adoption agencies that are going to work with you, you have to be well-networked. And so you have to find other networks of LGBT parents who can help you navigate that. And that's particularly true in more rural areas or less sort of progressive areas uh, where, you know, in in New York and New Jersey and sort of the Northeast corridor that we live in in California, um, that those doctors and those agencies are pretty easy to find. But in the middle of the country, and particularly in the South, they're not so easy to find. So you have to be well-networked, which is very different from the decision-making process um, for heterosexuals. Got it. Um, So clearly some, a lot of LGBT families are deciding to have children, and now they do have the technology, and at least the white middle-class ones have access to it and can have children if they want to. Would you like to say a little about the specific challenges that these families then face in raising the children? Um, In raising the children or actually getting... Well, either. Okay. Um, Well, in terms of... um, you know, one of the problems actually is just accessing um, ac- accessing the, the those again, um, 
well, healthcare healthcare policies generally say you have to be infertile, and, and a lot of those people are not infertile. So and you have to, it's expensive. I mean, that really is the biggest access problem is, is expense. But in terms of raising the children, um, what challenges do parents face? Most of it has to do with discrimination from outside of their families. So, for example, um, we uh, some of the couples that I interviewed were talking about how do they get childcare for their children. Um, so you call up a, and I was doing my research in the Midwest in the early 2000s, and so you know they would call up a they would call up a childcare center and say. Uh, you know, my my I'm a les- my children have two moms, or my f- children have uh, you know I'm I'm a lesbian, or whatever the w- language that they would use, and they wouldn't the the childcare center wouldn't take their children. Um, they would just wow. say, well, I'm not sure how that's going to work out. Um, and then going to schools, uh, you know, and 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 trying to find a school, trying to find a community where your children will be accepted. Uh, Lots and lots of people talk about how their children make friends, and as soon as their friends learn that they have two, you know, parents of the same sex, that those children don't, those children are no longer going to be friends. Once the parents get wind of that, those kids will no longer be friends. And then your little kids are sitting there thinking, well, why isn't Johnny coming over to play today? And it's really hard to explain that it's because of our family. Got it. So they're telling Nancy, like we that. need we need sure. to go to break again. Okay. And we'll talk more about this in a couple of minutes. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin. My guest today is Dr. Nancy Mezzi, author of LGBT Families, about lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender families. We were talking before break about the discrimination and the difficulty that these families face. We're going to do a little shift now. Nancy has argued that these families may actually be strengthening other American families and strengthening society overall. I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, and that is a major point of the book. I mean, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was really to gather as much information as I possibly could uh, so that people could look at the research in a reasonable way and make some decisions on their own. But I certainly wanted to make some conclusions as, as well. And what I, what I found through all of the research that I did was that um, – LGBT families, I think, are in many ways strengthening American families and, and society overall uh, by creating more egalitarian relationships or at least trying to move in that direction um, to try to maintain stable relationships. I think they give us a really good example of how to maintain stable relationships even in the face of discrimination. I think looking at, in, um, how, at intentional parenthood, which we talked about, so reducing unwanted, preg- unwanted pregnancies, I think is something that is beneficial to society in general. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things that I didn't talk about is that LGBT parents uh, are, or people are more likely than heterosexual people to adopt children instead of birthing them. So a larger number. And so if you, uh, of LGBT people are adopting children. That, um, and, and that's a good thing. We have a lot of children who need good, steady homes and stable homes. Um, and, uh, and I think that they're really good models to how we can move away from some harmful definitions of masculinity and femininity and create a degendered model of what a family might look like. And so really overall, um, offering, a safe, uh, offering children a safe, stable, secure, and healthy home in which to thrive and o- offering adults places that they can really uh, grow and um, grow with each other and grow by themselves, I think is a, a really good model to have. I see. That makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't talked yet about young people, children and teenagers who are recognizing that they may be lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender. And adolescence is tough for a lot of people, especially tough probably for this group. What what does the research say about these kids? So these kids are really, really struggling. And when I started doing the research, I was not going to include a chapter on youth. And then when I started reading, I thought, wow, how can I leave this out? And I called, my, um, I called the editor and I said, I, I, we need a chapter on youth. And so um, we know that uh, LGBT youth make up 20 to 40 percent of all homeless youth. Uh, LGB youth are, and there's not a whole lot of research on, on transgendered kids, but they're over eight times more likely to attempt suicide and three times more likely to use illegal drugs, three times more likely to engage in prote- unprotected sex than heterosexual kids. We know that trans, there's just story after story about transgender kids who are um, abused by their parents when they start transitioning. They're abused by their parents. Um, and there's a real lack of support from parents and teachers and adult role, role models in general. So the result of that, not surprisingly, uh, is very low self-esteem, 
uh, a real problem in dating, an overuse of uh, drug and alcohol, um, and, and just finding people like themselves. Uh, and then there's a huge amount of bullying in the schools, not just by, by other kids, but by, surprisingly, particularly for transgender kids, by teachers and administrators as well. So it's a really tough road to go as an LGBT youth. Is there anything that we can do to make life easier for these kids? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we're finding is that um, there are families, obviously, who are very supportive of their LGBT youth, and those kids do much, much better. Not surprising. I mean, this is not really rocket science here. So uh, you treat people with more respect, and you let them be who they want to be, and they actually grow up healthy. Surprise. And so, um, and then you have, so uh, when you create, nurturing arenas and, and families that, that create nurturing areas uh, for their kids, those kids do much, much better. Open communication between parents and children is much healthier so that kids don't suffer on their own. And that's particularly true for transgendered kids, especially when they start hitting adolescence and their bodies start changing in ways that they don't want them to. And in schools, there's a big anti-bullying uh, program now. I mean, New Jersey, where I live, is one of the strongest anti-bullying programs. And that really is around... Uh, trying to prevent suicides and bullying around LGBT people. So there's lots of, of both practices in the family and also, and again, it goes back to hearts and minds and laws uh, that we have to put into place, that changing hearts and minds to accept people for who they are, but also laws that support that. So yes, there's a lot, a lot that we can do. I mean, we can, we can make this problem go away. We really can. And that's what's so sort of startling to me. We can make children feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you want, I mean, to me, as a parent, like, why wouldn't you want to do that? There are some parents who really struggle with that, perhaps because of their religious heritage. And I'm not sure what the resources for those children are. If your own parents are really opposed to um, who you are, you're in a tough spot. Right, and I want to just say, so I, um, there, there is a program, and, you know, so if there are any kids out there listening, so there's a YouTube um, whole campaign called It Gets Better, where adults are to talk to kids and say, it, it does get better, life is hard now, but it'll get better. But I do want to just recognize, I mean, I dedicated this book to my late mother-in-law, Anne Stein, and my late um, grandmother-in-law, uh, Dorothy Cerami. And I did that because they are, they were uh, devoutly Catholic, church every day, Catholics, and they accepted me into their family like I was their own. And my great, my, my grandmother, my grandmother-in-law, lived till she was 100, almost 102, and always accepted me into the family. Um, and and so did my mother-in-law. And so I just really think that there is room for people to understand uh, and and to change and to think that you know to accept to accept people. And and that's why that is really the reason that I dedicated the book to them because I was really always amazed at how wonderful, how how open they were were, were to. Um, to sort of opening their hearts to me uh, in ways that, that other people who are devoutly religious might not, and I think they're a good model for that. Excellent. Okay. One of the things you do in the book that I think must have been very hard to do is after talking about how, you know the benefits of intentional parenting and egalitarian families and, and how LGBT families can really make Americans stronger – then you also went on to acknowledge these families are not immune to violence in intimate relationships. So what would you like to say about that? I think that's a really important point. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to create a Pollyannic ver- ver- view of, of LGBT families, 
but I, I and, and we recognize that there the rates of violence within those families are as high as they are in heterosexual families, and I think the concern for for everybody there is to understand why violence is occurring in our families, and if you we understand any violence in families, so intimate partner violence, if we understand it as a struggle of power and control, um, and that you have people in families that are, are really, you know, for, for a long time we looked at just sort of men as batterers, and it's always surprising to see that there are women who are batterers, because how could you do that? You're not a man. But, but when we look at that, what we really see is that when you have systems of oppression that, are, that we live in, so gender oppression and heterosexism and homophobia and racism, those systems are going to impinge upon our families and they're going to create these power struggles both on a micro level, which is really within the family, and macro levels, which exist in larger society. So until we get rid of those sort of structures of inequality, we're not going to get rid of the microstructures of inequality that exist within families. And it's so when you think of it on those terms, sort of on a more macro to micro level, and I know this is sort of this is sort of sociology 101 and I apologize for that, but when you think of it sort of on that macro, micro level, what you realize is it's really not surprising that there's violence in families at all. But if we want to end it, it's not about just ending individual violence. It really is about ending structures of inequality. Uh, it, does that answer your question? It does, yes. Maybe a little more academic. I'm sorry about that. Uh, That's than, fine. Than you wanted. Yeah. I think you mentioned also that um, there's a, a weapon available in LGBT families that isn't available in heterosexual families if one partner has not come out to the community. You know, the threat of outing somebody is another way that you can exercise power and control. Oh, absolutely. So, so outing that person to their family and friends, um, outing that person as a transgendered person, uh, outing that person as a bisexual person, also threatening. So if you're the biological parent or the legal parent and the other parent is not biologically or legally connected, threatening to take the children away, which is a very, um, a very real threat. So, you know, you could have raised a child, and we've, I've seen this happen in, in, you know, many occasions where somebody raises a child with a partner and then the, they split up and, the, and because it's a, a nasty, you know, breakup, then the partner doesn't, the non-legal or biological parent has no rights to that child. And so that's a real threat. So all of those issues, absolutely the kinds of threats that happen and the kinds of abuse that happen in LGBT families might be slightly different but the actual violence, you know, it's there. The other, the other problem that, that with LGBT violence, particularly same-sex, um, within same-sex couples, is that the police don't really know who to arrest. And because, you know, do you arrest the man, do you arrest the woman, um, do you arrest, or, or, sorry, which partner do you arrest? Uh, and that's harder uh, to, to know. And once, you're, once somebody's looking for shelter, there are very, few, you know, both women could go to a shelter and then you're in a shelter with your abuser. And for men, there are very few shelters at all. So those abused men often go to um, homeless shelters, and that's a pretty awful place to go. So there are issues that are very specific to LGBT couples that are not, don't exist for, for heterosexual couples. Okay. Nancy, we have just a minute or two left, and I want to give you time to say a little bit about websites and films. You've ended every chapter of the book with a list of websites and films. Right, and I have, to thank, I have to thank Morgan Firmstone, who was a graduate student um, in, at, at Monmouth University, who did those. So I really do. She did a great job, so I have to thank her for that. And really what we wanted to do 
I tried to write this book in a way that would be accessible to the general population. I, I hope I succeeded. I don't know that I did. But, um, but part of it, too, was when people were reading the book, I was really hoping that they would, if you wanted more information or you wanted some other sources to look at, that every chapter should end with some understanding of, of where to find those. And that's what, so Morgan did the research on that, and she put that together. So that, you know, if you're, you, know, you read all the academic stuff, and it's like, I want to, you know, what, what film would I watch, or what website would I, would I uh, go to? And, um, and so we have that in the book, hoping that it will help people uh, learn a little bit more on their own as well. That seems like a really good idea, including those, because you did do a very careful job of basing the book in research, so it does have an academic feel to it some of the time. Right. Um, but I think it's accessible. I think, you know, anybody can read it and understand what you're saying, and then the websites and films can add a lot. Right. Thank you. I appreciate your, those comments. Yeah. And, I, and yeah. it, it had to be based in research because I didn't want to be accused of people saying, well, this is just opinion. It's not opinion. This is, I mean, I pilfered through. This is science. Oh, this I mean, I pilfered science. through it. It's not just sociology. I mean, there's nursing and there's, you know, medical field and there's psychology and there's, I mean, it's just all across the board on purpose so that okay. it was as comprehensive as possible. Okay, we're coming to the end. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show. Is there one last thought you'd like to share? No, I just really, um, you know, if people are interested in um, in contacting me, they're certainly welcome to. Uh, they can, uh, I, I have an e- a Gmail account. It's um, nmezzi65 at gmail.com. I'm certainly happy to have a conversation with them. But I do really thank you for inviting me to the show and taking an interest uh, in my in my book. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.